This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me tonight are Cerise Howard. Hey, Cerise. Hello, uh, Flick. <laughs> Getting our radio voices ready. Yeah. <laughs> you had some practice last week, though, so uh, you're one oh, step ahead of me. I was a bit rusty, me. but yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on song now, I'm sure. Yes. Mm. And Thomas Caldwell. Hey, Thomas. And good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so smooth. <laughs> this is our first show of 2023, so it is a pleasure to be back on the airwaves. Big, big shout out to our summer shows, uh, The Fourth Wall by Andy Lee and Summer Stock with Eloise and Rowan. Uh, it's always good to have a bit of a mix up over summer. I really enjoy it and it kind of gives a, a fresh take on some films. And Cerise, you were on last week talking about, which film were you chatting about? Oh, from? we talked about Fablemans of and course, yes. and another film about kids discovering the love of cinema was Son of Rambo. Oh, yeah. it's just magnificent. Yes. Yeah. Gee, how old is that now? 15 years or? Uh, 10 to 15 or so. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's good. Yeah, I've got to go back and watch it. I feel like there's so many where I've, I've written them down in a diary somewhere of films to, to check out. <laughs> I've got to, whenever I listen to these shows, especially like retrospectives, I'm like, oh, I've got to, I've got to rewatch that one or I've got to check that one out. Um, Summer Stock is sort of goes through all sorts of different things, you know, um, from Hollywood's, uh, some really old Hollywood films to um, lots of soundtracks. And The Fourth Wall is, is kind of a new addition to the Summer Summer Phil, um, Andy talked all about um, songs being played in um, film, but it's also like kind of a, a something of a an ode to the archivists who and, and the music supervisors who work on films who often don't get much um, much credit when we're talking about film. So maybe something we can we can make more of an effort for. That was the Fourth Wall and Summer Stock, and you can listen back to both of those shows via the Triple R website, um, and I highly recommend you do that. That is rrr.org.au. So on tonight's show, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Europa Europa Film Festival, which kicked off on Thursday with Quentin Reynolds' uh, French eco-thriller The Blaze, and it's going to be running until the 7th of March. And later tonight, um, we'll be joined by filmmaker Clara Law. Now, Acme is currently screening a retrospective of Law's work, which spans four decades. Focus on Clara Law is running until the tw- uh, Sunday, the 26th of February, February, so this Sunday. And you can head to acme.net.au for the full program and to buy some tickets. So for our final show of 2022, uh, Vaishnavi Kumar and Will Cox joined me to chat about uh, all the films and TV shows that we're most excited to watch over the summer break. Uh, you can, of course, listen back to that episode if you like via our podcast. So after that episode, I, I went into labour a few weeks after that. So uh, I've been looking after a newborn and I haven't actually watched any of those films. Uh, I've basically just been watching old episodes of 
grand designs. Uh, but luckily, <laughs> dear listener, uh, we have Thomas and Cerise here to let me know what their highlights were. Um, Thomas, let's start with you. What were your the fave films or TV shows that you watched over summer? Over the summer break. So we can't include sort of things February, can we? We shouldn't oh, look at over summer. It's still, I mean, it's going to be 36 later this week. I feel like we can include February. Oh, you, you, you <laughs> might. I, look, I think the film that really blew my mind recently the most, which is coming out this Thursday actually, is... Um, or is it coming out? Yeah, After Sun. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, which has had a lot of festival play mm. already, I know. But I, I caught up with it via a screener, mm. watched it at home. And I think I was kind of um, relieved I saw it at home rather than in a cinema because I was a mess. <laughs> this is one of those films that really hit me to my core mm. about a, 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 a single father, which is something I've recently begun to identify with a lot, who is going on – he takes his – I think she's 11 years old, his 11-year-old daughter on a holiday. And he's a, you know, he's a lovely man, and but he, he clearly doesn't have a lot of money. He clearly has a few inner demons and mental health issues he's struggling with, and yet he tries to give her this great holiday. And then we realise the film is told in flashback of her as – an adult, and somewhere the relationship has declined and he's mm. gone south quite badly. And we just get glimpses that later in their relationship, you know, he mentally has a significant breakdown. And this is sort of her memory of this beautiful time with him as, as father and child. And and I'm probably going to start getting a crack in my voice if I talk about it any further. Mm. But it is so... Um, it, it, it's directed with such tenderness and, and insight. And the mm. acting is just superb. Mm. Yeah, Paul Mezcal in the lead role. Paul Mezcal, who mm. just is on this amazing ascent. I mean, ever since that incredible TV series he was in based on that incredible book, uh, someone help yeah. me out, I'm going Conversations blank. Conversations with Friends or is it the other no, one? No, it's the other one. Oh, God. I've... Ordinary People, yes, is that the one? It. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I mean, the, the, the book blew my mind and then the, the TV show um, uh, I thought was also stunning and yeah. a lot of that was because of the two leads him being one and um yeah what an amazing beautiful actor I mean he's gorgeous to look at as well he's just so cinematic Mm. he's so good at carrying emotion in his face with the slightest gesture you know he's not a big actor but it's all there behind the eyes so yeah Yeah. After Sun sent the shivers down my spine I heard so many things about After Sun at MIF and I even had tickets to it and I missed it I had to rearrange a few things however I just complained before about not being able to go to the movies because I've got a newborn there is a crybaby session of that of Thornbury Picture House next Wednesday, I believe. Oh, is the so. crying for the kids or the parents? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can cry. <laughs> Although they do have the lights slightly up, so you will see people will see you crying yeah, if you're that, uncomfortable with that. No, go to that if you can. Yeah, for sure. Um, what else did you have over your summer break? Was there anything else that stood out? I'll tell you like what to... was a real surprise is uh, Skinnamarink. So this is this sort of film, this horror film that has sort of been generating a bit of word of mouth. And I I think it got leaked ahead of time online, which is a bit unfortunate. It's now on Shudder. But um, a few other cinemas have given it special screenings. And I I went to the Astor that they they had the foresight um, to, to give it a screening ahead of its online release. And it's a film that you're going to love or hate. And I've read some really damning reviews by people who honestly come across as a bit dim-witted. Um, <laughs> apologies if you found this film boring. I don't identify with you at all. But it is an experimental film. It's an experimental horror film, which is mostly this very dark, low-resolution footage inside a very ordinary suburban house that two young children live in. 
and it's non-lineal, but we, we, we've, we sort of gradually find out that the parents have disappeared and then things like the doors and the windows have disappeared. Wow. And most of the film is just this incredibly, sort of inverted commas, poor quality footage and distorted sound of often just very difficult to see space. And ordinary objects suddenly have a lot of menace. There are a few what we might call jump scares, but there's just enough to keep you on the edge of your seat throughout the whole film. And like I said, I know people who just said this was 100 minutes of pure boredom torture. And then I came very much from the point of view was this was an exercise in dread building um, and leading in heavily to the uncanny. Mm. That reminded me of, yeah, early experimental cinema, especially some of the stuff from the 60s and the 70s. And, and I loved it, just the audacity of the film. Um, yeah. It's cu- currently streaming on Shutter. did you yeah. say? Yeah. And what was the title again? Uh, Skinamarink. Okay, I'm writing that one down. In ten, within 10 minutes, you're going to know whether this is the film for you mm, or not. But, yeah, yeah. It, it really is a love or hate film and yeah. I'm definitely in the love camp. And whether Thomas thinks I'm, I'm <laughs> no, smart enough it. to enjoy oh, this. <laughs> no, I, was just, I, I read this one really irritating review. It was that, that kind of review which was claiming that if you like this film, you're only doing it because you're posing and trying oh, to be intellectual. Yeah. And I, I yeah. can't stand that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. if you ju- legitimately dislike this film, I have no... I have no argument with you. Just don't be a dig about it. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible when they throw other audience members under the bus. Like, we all have very different taste. But yeah, then yeah, they yeah. kind of go, oh, you must be an idiot if you liked this. Or you must be a poser. Yeah. Um, Cerise, I know that you um, – well, you, firstly, I suppose you're one of the programmers of Melbourne Cinematheque. So I know you mentioned off-air that you haven't watched that many films over summer. However – you must have watched quite at least the first uh, three screenings for Melbourne Cinematheque. Well, first two, two weeks. First two, yeah. sorry. Yes, yeah, we've yeah. got a third one this week. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about our recent um, showcase of Toninho Guerra? I know I'm not pronouncing. I'm oh, rolling the R's. Pretty good, I think. Um, <laughs> he's a screenwriter. That yes. was not a. He's not a household name in a way, but he's been associated with many household names. He's collaborated as a screenwriter with many directors who are household names. Uh, including several in this season, the likes of Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, we screened Blow Up. Um, uh, we screened last week Andrei Tarkovsky's Nostalgia. And it was a full house. And how nice is it to be in a full house once more at Acme? That's 390 seats. Yeah. Film culture's back. It is. It's a real comfort. I, things yeah. have seemed precarious. Absolutely. And I actually think summer is a really challenging time sometimes to get audiences in the cinemas. You know, some of our bigger film festivals are held during winter, which is maybe sometimes an easier sell. Um, The summer screenings are hard. Then again, our summer has been so bonkers as well. There are so (laughs) many factors just weirding everything, making everything that bit harder to predict. Yeah, Um, that's true. I think we are moving into an era, though, where more specialised screenings is Mm. what's going to succeed. Like Mm. as the blockbuster dies, the the, the multiplexes sort of suffer because it's the same thing being shown on every screen and it's, Mm. it's, it's diminishing returns. I think what places like the Melbourne Cinematheque especially do, and one, they've got a loyal audience because it's been programming excellence for like quite literally decades yeah. now. Australia's longest running film society. So. Is it really? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, being a parent is the reason I don't get to go anymore at that, that, that swimming lesson day. Um, but it's, um, but I think showing this really beautifully curated films um, from the past hundred plus years of, of cinema, it's um, you're sort of, feeding an appetite that you just can't get on streaming mm. services. So I'm thrilled to hear that films like Nostalgia is getting packed audiences yeah. as it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, this name, Tonino Guerra, 
our first sellout in many years, and most people probably didn't know the name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the season's dedicated to his work collaborating with people like Tarkovsky and Antonioni and Elio Petri and uh, Theo Angelopoulos. Um, big names in art house cinema, yeah. European flavoured art house cinema in particular. I always love programming that really displaces the centrality of the, the director as this central auteur yes. well, yeah. yep. as well. So focusing on screenwriting well, is that's so right. wonderful. Well, week because, one we had yeah. Fellini mm. and Antonioni in the same season and it's all about Tonino Guerra instead. Yeah, yeah. I Take that, that auteurism. What Take that. <laughs> what Fellini did you show? Am I caught? Oh, God. Yeah. Possibly the best film score ever. Oh, I know. Am I caught? Yeah. It's the airwormiest, swooniest of... Scores. Mm. Yeah. So, stories outside of Cinematheque, what have you caught up on over summer? Well, I've seen a few Europa Europa films, mm. so we'll come to that in due course, yes. won't we? Um, uh, of the newish releases, only so many. Megan, I oh, enjoyed yes. a ton. Yeah. I mean, AI. <laughs> I did too. Yeah, yes. oh, it was so much fun. Yes. And it seems so pertinent right now because anxiety around artificial intelligence. Yes. Um, Chat GBT. Yes, Chat GBT <laughs> and uh, all the, the art, um, like Mid Journey mm. and um, other, other means of generating images from big data, basically. Mm. Big data, in this case, being intellectual property of people often still alive. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. I'm about to begin an academic year as a teacher. I have to take an induction course about how to detect. AI um, yeah. augmented um, you, work. You're not going to stre- um, switch to written-only <laughs> essays? Or? Look, I might get ChatGPT to do my marking for me. <laughs> I don't think that's unreasonable, is it? I didn't say that on air, did no, I? No. Is this on? <laughs> Shit. Can I ask you something about Megan? Did you yeah. get Joe Dante vibes from that? Because ah. that's what well, that's the feeling I got, which was it was a really fun yeah. blend yeah. of comedy and horror, and weirdly family friendly while not being family that's friendly. That's right. Now you say it, I, I did, I do. Yeah, that is the sort of sensibility. It is a bit of an eighties comedy horror vibe. Mm. No, um, not so much leaning into the practical effects of that era, which I find part of the charm, yeah, a totally. big part of the charm of say Gremlins. Oh and God, such. yes, yes. But yeah, there, there is something of that sensibility and it is that sort of level of funny. Yeah. It was really witty yep. and silly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are a lot of moments where you're genuinely confused about, do I take this seriously or do I start giggling? And I enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, it did get pretty campy. Yeah. Mm. Well, those are some wonderful uh, recommendations for, if you, you know, if you missed those over summer, now is your time to catch up on them. Um, so, Thomas, last year uh, was the first iteration of the Europa Europa Film Festival. Uh, and it was obviously a great success if you're back again this year. Uh, you are the artistic director. Um, so, you, you did mention last year that you were a little bit worried about how the screenings were going to play out in Melbourne and Sydney. Because both of those cities were, of course, fresh out of lockdown. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> pandemic is unfortunately still very much here, um, but we're in a very different situation. Um, most of the population, thankfully, has had their fourth vaccination and the fifth one is going to be rolled out, I think, this week. Today. Today. Locally, yeah. Yes, Today. there we go. Is it? I might just literally walk out the door now and get yeah. this. <laughs> Me too. I love getting my vaccine. Shots, yep. So <laughs> you're, you're once again yeah. coordinating this festival over two cities. Um, so it must have gone okay with that simultaneous broadcast of the post-screening Q&As and everything like that that we talked about. Um, how are you feeling about um, – <laughs> how are you feeling so far on the festival? We're on day five. 
Look, it's it's hard to get a gauge of how it's going um, this early. I've I've only been to one screening myself, but you know it was good audience numbers, yeah. and it was again just that feeling of being in a cinema with people who are just really locking into a film that wasn't a superhero film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, don't, I don't want to sound like I'm going to throw those films under the bus all the time, but they do dominate cinema at the moment. And I sometimes wonder, are audiences still able to get on board with stuff that has open-ending resolutions, yes. morally ambiguous characters, mm. you know, all that kind of thing, which, which you get in pretty much every body of cinema outside of Hollywood. And, and so, yeah, look, so far I think so good. I'm really pleased with the program. I think mm. one of the big things we did differently this year was be a bit more conscious of putting more lighthearted stuff in there. <laughs> so last year was a really amazing program of big festival heavy hitters and, you know, mm. important films. And it was sort of afterwards I re- we sort of collectively realised, gee, that was intense. So yeah. this year, as well as looking at films that have premiered at major festivals and films that are submitted to the Academy Awards. We also looked at box office numbers in countries, mm. you know, in Europe. And it's extraordinary how many countries have these massive box office successes and those films don't then travel anywhere else because they aren't kind of considered the festival darlings. But they're still very entertaining, enjoyable, well-crafted films. So we, we try to put some more of those into the festival this time. And, yeah, I'm really happy that it's a festival of excellence and it's not the same old. It doesn't kind of have that best of vibe. Mm. You know, a lot of festivals just seem to play the same things as everybody else does. Um, Or, or, you know, there's sort of a coming attraction festival for stuff that's going to get released over the next Mm. few months anyway. The stuff we've put together is pretty unique to to us. And, and, you know, we are showcased in countries that are usually ignored or, or don't get... Yeah, and they're countries with tiny film industries. So, so the film that they submit to the Academy Awards might be one of a dozen films made that year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 feeling really good about about the diversity and and diversity in all its forms, both in you know contents, themes, genre, and um and you know people represented on screen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of interesting. I remember one of the things you you pointed out last year was that. You know, the benefit of doing something where you're talking about Europe as this, you know, this broad continent, and it's kind of really beyond Europe as well because there's lots of collaborations done with other countries and and films that you're including that that fit into that category. But you talked about how that's much more um, enjoyable to program than something that's just focusing on one country because you don't have to, say, if you're just focusing on one, you don't have to just put out every film that came out of that country that year. So you're not kind of boxed in in that same way. Um, You mentioned that this program for 2023 is um, full of diverse um, threads and themes and, and stuff like that, narrative styles. But what are you most passionate about what you're going to be screening this this year? I'm two of my favourite films this year are both Romanian, actually. Oh, right. And I'm not necessarily a hardcore <laughs> Romanian guy, but um, <laughs> they're both films that um, they're very different films, and I think they're 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 two of the best films I've seen in recent times. Um, one is a film called Miracle, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival. Yeah, right. Um, so a really smart. I want to call it a police procedural or sort of a detective film, but that kind of diminishes its complexity. We, we, it's a film told in two halves. The first half is the story of a novice nun and her mysterious trip to the city, what's she up to, and then something pretty bad happens. And then the second half of the film is about a detective trying to put together the pieces of what happened to her and why. 
and the very morally compromised situations he gets put into about what will he do to solve the case and, you know, do the ends justify the means? And it's just such a powerful, satisfying film that works as a piece of genre cinema on one level, but but it also wrestles with these big issues such as, you know, the nature of re- redemption and, and, and revenge. Um, that blew my mind. And the other remaining film that really that really had a major impression on me Pression on me um, is Intragold. How, how am I saying that? It's named after it, a region. Yeah, Intragold, I think. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I miss doing radio with you, Cerise, where whenever I butcher <laughs> a name, I can just turn to you and you can that very politely butchery. correct me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that really intriguing film about a bunch of um, relief aid workers in in the wilderness in very remote, remote Romania. In fact, I think it's, the, it's Transylvania. It's the region previously known as Transylvania. And their car breaks down, it's late at night, they split up, and the film starts to feel like it's going to play out like a horror film. Mm. And you're, you're, you know, you're slapping your forehead at the decisions they make, and then a mysterious man comes out of the forest and tells them to come with him to the sawmill. And <laughs> in your mind, you're piecing together where this film is going to go, and by the end of the film, it's subverted all expectations, and it's become this very, very sad in many ways and very beautiful look at the way we our prejudices do inform us incorrectly mm. and and the characters in the film and the audiences are kind of confronted with the fact that our biases made us completely misread a situation um, and and our prejudices about people who might live in these communities is very much put under the microscope really smart film mm. and I, I saw this one too and yeah there, there's um you know the, the lead characters are of that that privileged ilk who just don't know what they don't know they yeah. don't don't grasp how well they have it mm. um and they don't grasp when they're being dicks you know because <laughs> you know, they um their, their behavior is not exactly beyond reproach they're, um and but it, it feels very very real that they, they, they don't fall into caricatures of um, you know the the well-heeled city folk, not too much, just enough for you to get a little you know, anxious that yeah you know, some sort of genre conventions may indeed play out and mm. but then even if if they did would they get their just desserts would it be just because mm. you know, are they us are we them who's othered here so miracle. And this is true of uh, a lot of the films, actually, all of the films that are playing as part of Europe, Europa. There are four screenings of Miracle that uh, audience members can go to, four in Melbourne and then another three in Sydney. Um, and one of the things I love most uh, about attending festivals are the Q&As um, and the panel discussions that are often included as part of the programming. Cerise, I understand you'll be conducting a Q&A for My Love Affair with Marriage. Tell us about this. Well, I'm so happy you did <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. Well, yeah. Will it's not quite the right tense, even though there are several screenings still yes, to come. Yes. I, my Q and A will be a feature of all of them, um, but that's because it's a pre-record. But don't go anywhere after the film screen, and I'm sure you don't, you won't want to, folks. Those of you who see My Love Affair with Marriage, which is the second feature by a very prolific animator director from originally from Latvia, Signa Balmana, and. She's just a, a singular, wonderful creator and wonderful talker. Um, mm. we, we have a really fun conversation and it perhaps helped that we had met before. Uh, but her, her latest film is a, a pretty rare sort of mash, mishmash of genres. There, there's 
I think, fairly thinly veiled autobiography. Uh, there's, well, it's animated, and it's a few different styles of animation. There's a lot that's actually in the backgrounds that are, are palpable three-dimensional models and a lot of paper mache, but then there's a lot of her own hand-drawn animation. And uh, it's sort of a comedy, it's sort of an episodic, picaresque sort of a film. It's also a musical. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> it's very funny. And it is, it is very and funny. And very absurd at and points too. Her, her own term, yeah. her own genre for it was a f- forensic thriller. Oh, and wow. so what, what it is, it sounds like it's going to be a romantic film from that title, My Love Affair with Marriage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but every time the lead character... Uh, starts to have feelings we then actually see this internalized very literally we we get to understand all of the hormonal uh uh, what would we call these things hormonal surges uh, surges (laughs) everything that's going on internally is described in voiceover and animated a different animated did those sequences to give it a bit of a different look and feel but the same sensibility comes out it's extremely clinical um and then yeah, completely puncturing any sense of the, the romance and the, the you know, there's none of the swooning John Williams strings here or any of this sort of um, carry on. It's, it's just, You've sort of got parts uh, of her brain sort yeah. of say to the audience, this is a chemical reaction yeah, to, that's to right. this. It's not an authentic feeling. Yeah. <laughs> this is what's going on throughout yeah. her entire endocrinological system. Wow. And it's, it's really funny and I believe accurate. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, so we get to know about what goes on and all the various lobes that the brain has. That sounds fantastic. Um, so My Love Affair with Marriage, um, which will feature a Q&A with Cerise at every one of the screenings. I presume pre- so, yeah. <laughs> oh, and she intros it too. She oh, gives a fantastic. very vivacious introduction. To oh, great. Mm. <laughs> so there are five screenings of My Love Affair with Marriage in Melbourne and then another three in Sydney. For listeners who have just tuned in, we are chatting with Thomas Caldwell, who's the Artistic Director of Europa Europa Film Festival, which is currently happening here in Melbourne and in Sydney. Now, Thomas... You mentioned that, you know, the, the film is a showcase, showcase of new releases across Europe, but there are some remarkable retrospective screenings, notably a 4K restoration of the Three Colours trilogy. We got those, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So huge news. Yeah. Um, these are bound to be very popular and hopefully it hasn't sold out just yet. Um, can you tell us a bit about the decision to include this iconic trilogy? Well... God, it wasn't hard. <laughs> when, 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 when I heard that there were a 4K restoration yeah. done of the Three Colours trilogy and when the, the sales agent, I think, got in touch with me or even the people I work with at the festival who wow. put them on to me, I just said, well, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. these, especially for those of us who lived through the early 90s, and the early 90s was sort of my cinema coming of age, I guess, um, these were massive art house blockbusters. Mm. Um, you know, this, this incredible... Trilogy of films um, that were sort of, I mean, they all do work on their own, uh, but there is sort of, you know, the characters do drift in and out of each film. Um, and, and the idea is, yeah, blue, white, and red. Not only are they exploring a dominant theme, but they explore the concept behind the respective colour on the French flag. Mm. Um, I, so we've only got one screening of each per city, and Three Colours Blue unfortunately happened on Saturday. So if you've missed that, that's it. But we've oh. got white and red coming up. But I, I went to the screening of Three Colours Blue because I wanted to see this 4K restoration. And 
Um, I was so struck by how the film had such little dialogue, how much it conveyed with imagery and expression and light and colour. And it did very much for me hark back to a time when this sort of thing was more the norm, Mm. where film, the visual element of film, we could lean into. There wasn't so much exposition and explanation. I think Mm. if, if I could put my finger on something that has been a real shame in cinema in the last 10 or 15 years is this tendency to over-explain. And whether that's because audiences are now highly distracted or or, or too busy on their phones. And I remember the the first film I watched where I just had this impression of, God, this has been made for people who are looking at their phones because everything is explained in detail out loud and Mm. um, it's not for people who pay attention to the visual components. I'm getting sidetracked at Old Manny again. (laughs) I've been very Old Manny tonight, haven't I, ranting about things I don't like. No, no, so the Three Colours (laughs) films are... um, they're just two of the forces. There we go. Yeah. There, there, there's no overused French expression. And yeah, if, if you've if you if you didn't get to see Three Colors Blue on Saturday, catch up with it. Another day. Yeah. It's going to get released on Blu-ray and 4K yeah. thingy soon anyway. But um, do but try to, to come along to White. Yeah, yeah, to see it in the cinema and especially Red. I mean, White is White is good. I remember the best description of White I heard was it's a, it, it's a comedy that's not funny. <laughs> Where blue, I think someone described it as a melodrama that's not sad, like you know, but in, in a clever way. Like yeah. they're, they're, they're films that play with cinematic conventions and then sort of do their own thing. Mm. But um, but Red's the one. I mean, I, I actually I, I couldn't believe Red didn't win the Palm Door. I had to look up why didn't that win the Palm Door? What did win that year? It was Pulp Fiction. Oh, right. It never had a chance. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I think at the time I was very much Team Pulp Fiction, yeah. but um, you I probably no, I probably still am. I mean, what a film. But I think that's that's the one reason it didn't go to red. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm tremendously excited about um, that trilogy and seeing it on the big screen because honestly, I saw it in uh, film school was the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, tw- many years ago. <laughs> I don't know how many decades ago, but a long time ago, and it is used as this kind of. Um, perfect example of how to visually convey a message rather than relying on dialogue. So well yeah. worth checking yep. out on the big screen. Um, Europa Europa Film Festival is going to be playing at Classic Cinemas, Elstonwick and Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne until the 7th of March, and that's for here in Melbourne. It is, of course, also playing simultaneously in Sydney, which is very exciting. Uh, for the full program and to buy your tickets, you can head to europafilmfestival.com.au. Thomas, it's always a pleasure having you on Prime screen. Thank you. I love coming on the show. Thank you. <laughs> Our pleasure. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and Cerise Howard. So earlier tonight, we spoke with Thomas Caldwell about Europa Europa Film Festival, which is being uh, held at Classic Cinemas Elstonwick and also Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne until the 7th of March. For the full program and to buy your tickets, head to europafilmfestival.com.au. So listeners who tuned into Breakfasters this morning may have heard about Melbourne Women in Film Festival, which starts this Thursday. Now, one of the films being featured in that festival is Clara Law's The Goddess of 1967. The screening is a special collaboration between MWFF and ACME, who are currently showcasing a wonderful retrospective of Clara Law's work. Focus on Clara Law is screening at ACME until this Sunday and it features an impressive showcase of the groundbreaking cinema of Clara Law and uh, it's got five formative features that have been specifically selected by the director. Uh, It is my pleasure to now welcome Clara to Primal Screen. Hi, Clara. 
Hey, how are you? Very well. So, Clara, uh, your filmography spans nearly four decades and it covers multiple countries of production. It must have been a terribly difficult task to narrow down your extensive filmography to just five films. Um, firstly, what have you selected to present and, and how did you come to this decision? Yeah, I think you must know the, the um, creative journey. There will be times when uh, you have to do certain things because um, yeah, there is a certain compromise to do that. But at the same time, you needed to do it because uh, either it is because you have uh, made a promise or because you know, you like to do it. But at the same time, you know that you know that there has to be some kind of compromises. Now, with the selection, it probably represented you know different stages of our life. You know, in the in our creative mm-hmm. journey, where we felt that there was less of a commercial pressure, but more because you know the uh, either the money was already all in place, or because you know we just did it on our own. You know, with no help from anyone. So, so that's why you know it's. I think it's the best way to present me or me and Eddie as yeah. uh, as truthfully as we can. I mean, although we would say that with all the other films that we didn't uh, select, you know, it was more because sometimes also it's very hard to find them. The copyright wasn't with us. But at the same time, mostly it's because, you know, of what I've just said. Yeah, absolutely. And the films that um, have already been, um, that you've got coming up, well, you had two already films that have been screened and, and that was um, Sunday's screening, which was They Say the Moon is Fully Here, which also featured a Q&A, and Drifting Pedals on uh, Saturday, which which kicked, um, kick-started the retrospective. You also no, have... actually three. Oh, three, three sorry. That, yeah, it started on the 16th. Oh, sorry, high. of course, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, my mistake. Um, and, yes, all right. Yes, and so can you tell us about that third film as well? Floating Life? Yes. Oh, Floating Life, it was um, amazing. I thought no one was going to be there because, you know, <laughs> oh, really? it, it has been shown quite a number of times. Yes. Uh, and it actually was shown two weeks ago in the uh, Lunar, uh, Lunar New Year uh, celebration uh, that was organised by the Australian Chinese Museum. Uh, and it was quite, uh, quite uh, very warmly received there, and there was quite a lot of audience there. So I was saying, oh, they would have seen it, and you know, why would they come again? Oh. But, you know, it was quite a, quite a good crowd, and I was happy, you know, with uh, the response, and people were really receptive and resonated, and they said they cried all the way. So I was pretty happy with that. I'm, I'm not at all surprised that there was a lot of people at Floating Life. It's one I'm, I'm very um, excited about. I mean, it has such a strong cultural significance. I remember uh, we got the opportunity to speak with Corrie Chen, um, who's a Taiwan-born director, uh, last year to talk about her TV show. But she actually had some really powerful words to say about your film, Floating Life. Um, She talked a bit about the fact of when she came over to Australia when she was 10 years old, and um, that was during the Pauline Hanson era um, in 1996. And that your film, uh, and this is a direct quote, um, it was an exploration of cutting off the homeland to find a better life for the new generation. Old country versus new country was really my story. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about your filmography is the stories that you tell and particularly with your – you've been living in Australia from the 90s, is that right? 
Yes. Yeah. There was, uh, when we made something like that was uh, when we actually settled down. Before that, you know, for a few years, we were back and forth a bit because we came here to visit my parents in 92. Then we went back to do uh, 93, do um, uh, Temptation of the Monk. Then, you know, uh, came here again and they kind of like back and forth. And finally, uh, 95 was when uh, I shot Floating Life and that was when we uh, seriously settled down here. Now, you and Eddie Fong, who is your collaborator and husband, are going to be present at all five of the screenings at this Acme retrospective. Um, four decades is a really impressive innings for a marriage, let alone a creative partnership. Um, mm. Can you tell us a bit about how you first started working together on film? Well, we first started because, you know, I was looking for a writer that I could work with and I had worked with a quite number of different ones because I worked also in Out HK. Uh, Out HK is a little bit like ABC here where you can do drama and but it was like short, like half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, and then I was I, I finished my study in National Film School and, you know, my graduation from they say the Muniz Fuller here was done there. Um, and then I went back to Hong Kong. I was looking for someone to work with me together, you know, on starting uh, to do a feature. And I, I had read uh, Eddie's work by then. You know, he uh, had uh, written, he, he's a, a very um, renowned uh, scriptwriter, but he also had done two films which he uh, directed. And I thought mm, maybe he wouldn't want to write script for any other person again. And But I still, you know, I called him and, and said to him, you know, will you work with me? But I have no money. Uh, is that okay? We'll develop something together and then we'll, we'll go look for uh, a, a funding because there's no funding body there. So it's mm. all in private investment. Oh, and right. It's, okay. it's all private. Oh, all private. Wow. Nothing like here. No right. soft money. None. Um, and he said, okay. So then we started working. So he wasn't for the money. He was for something he told me that, you know, he was quite disappointed with uh, the film industry. Then, you know, the thing he worked on, he uh, felt that he was um, uh, castrated in a way and, and he was actually going to give up. Uh, and then, you know, he saw someone like me who was uh, silly enough who wanted to go into that again. You know, so yeah. why not? <laughs> That's, so then we, yeah. yeah, then we started working together and then, you know, slowly it's kind of developed into something more. That is um, remarkable. Sorry? That is really remarkable. And also the shift that you would have seen um, with moving from, from that kind of model to Australia where you have been able to um, access funding. I understand that um, your latest film was made on a very tight budget though. Is that right? Yeah, I actually most of my films were on tight budget because yeah. I was very aware that the more money uh, uh, invested in a film, the more compromises you have to make. Mm. I mean, understandably, right? You know, yes. someone had, had put their money in, they wanted something back. Uh, so, uh, you know, as much as possible, we try to keep it within a certain budget. Uh, and of course, you know, that would start from the script writing stage. And Eddie was good at that, you know, he, he because he was also a producer. And, he, you know, I thought he, he wasn't especially interested in being a producer, but he knew that, you know, that was uh, that's uh, something that we have to do if we want to do things together uh, and make things possible, as, you know, with different projects. You need to go to different, uh, to, to do it in different ways. And so, yeah, that was how we uh, work. You know, we, we try to find a way to tell a story truthfully without 
you know, having to compromise too much. And the best way to do it is to do it within a tight budget, which we always do. And I, I'm very, um, I must say that I'm very careful with the way I, I mean, in the past, you use films, right? And you use film and you have to be very careful about how much film you spend. Mm. Because the negative, the more you use, the more, you know, money you spend. And the more days you're shooting, and so the, the more money you need it. Uh, and I uh, and Eddie would be one to tell you that I'm very good at that. You know, I try to uh, be very uh, accurate with what I uh, wanted to do, and and um, not. And I'm very careful in planning my shots. So um, I would have a floor plan. I would know where to put the camera. I would choreograph with the with the um, actors, so that you know uh, when we are on set, we are quite ready. And of course, you know, there can be improvisation, but most of the time uh, I got it as close as possible to what, what I visualized in my head. Mm. And then when the, in the editing, there's not much wastage. So that was how we uh, moved, you know, in all the 40 years plus, no, no, 30 plus years, close to 40 years of work. Yeah, that's... And um, actually with Dipping Paddles, that was when we actually didn't act and have any any uh, investment from anyone. Because we found that the, the uh, investment climate is getting harder and harder, uh, the whole uh, system, the whole scene is now getting more and more conservative. I guess you know with streaming, um, people are looking for content a lot of times, mm. and uh, that make it harder. You know, it's very different from say the floating life and the uh, goddess era. Where you know with the poor eating, uh, um, lavishing money, you know <laughs> on on art, uh, we did get a lot more um, um, freedom in a way, mm. and and a more uh, a possibility to experiment and and the original. But now it is harder and harder. You yeah. know, not just you know with the um, investment climate, also with the. Uh, our sales out there, it was all harder and harder. Everyone was telling us about that. So with drilling paddles, we thought, okay, we'll just use a little bit of our money because the technology is so um, much now, be able to you be able to do it without having to use like big uh, crew or you know cam you know, cameras or whatever. And we actually had our own home studio, you know, set up to do that. And then we intended to you know to go along doing this as as much as possible, you know, do a project that we think we can maybe look for the soft money at the same time, some kind of private investment, but at the same time to do something that we think. Okay, honestly, there won't be anyone going to to invest in this. So let's just go and do it, you know, because we feel the need and that there's the, uh, the time element. There's no time to wait, and then we'll just go ahead and do it. So that is the plan. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the more freedom you have, the more you said the possibility of doing something really original and interesting, and um, with this kind of. I hope, you know, I, I'm calling, you know, for uh, the executives out there to understand that actually artists need support in a way that um, you have to listen to their voice, mm. you know. And if you become something that is, uh, okay, you follow a certain trend, then there is no originality and it just becomes really boring. Absolutely. And your filmography is an absolute testament to the originality and um, really specific 
stories that can be told and particularly about the Asian uh, migrant experience. Um, for listeners that have just tuned in, um, your this is Primal Screen and I am chatting with filmmaker Clara Law about her retrospective that is currently playing at ACME. Now, Clara, I've, I've read a lovely quote where you talked about the work that you and Eddie do and you said that you want to make films that can stand the passage of time and can touch people's hearts hundreds of years later. As I said, a lot of your filmography does deal with the Asian migrant experience, but and you know, Floating Life um, was Australia's first ever uh, submission um, in the at the Academy Awards for the for best foreign language film. Um, now, one of the other things that you capture on screen, though, is Australian suburbia. Now, can you talk a little bit about how why you were drawn to capture that on screen? I think, you know, first of all, the fact that you talk about an you know, Asian um, a migrant, I think the fact that we did that is not because it is just Asian migrant. I think more it is about existence, but that mm. migrant experience actually highlights the kind of existence that a lot of us nowadays, or modern existence, have to deal with or be mm. confronted with. Because I think even today, we live in a city, we are kind of disconnected with our roots in a way, with our culture. Uh, it, it can be Asian culture, it can be, uh, you know, Iranian culture or whatever. People do move very much nowadays. Mm. And so, in a way, you have to go back to your roots in order to find yourself. I think that is very important. And the migrant experience heightened that kind of existence and able to tell us more about how humans can live together as a community as uh, and not be tribal, you know, where we have mm-hmm. tribes, but at the same time we do also need to work and live together in harmony in such a way that we can understand each other and not be, you know, always pointing the fingers at you are the other mm-hmm. and not, either, you know, part of, you're not part of me, you're not yeah. part of our culture, you're not. And I think, you know, that is our intention from the very beginning or me as a person because I was, I would have been like you know, traveling all my life, you know, born in Macau, raised in Hong Kong, studied in England, now in Australia. And that has been, you know, that identity crisis has been part of me. So mm. I think, you know, to be truthful to that, finding your root, your culture, and then be able to kind of, you know, do that to the humanity and so that we can share all the culture. Now, the suburban thing is more because this is the kind of existence in Australia. I think people are kind of like very much in suburbs. Mm. We have the city. city is like somewhere that we go to when we want to have some kind of activities, uh, go to see a film or, you know, some kind of entertainment. But then you go back home and it's either the inner suburb or the outer suburb or the middle suburb. And that was the first thing I felt when I landed in Australia. Mm. And, you know, I, I could see then the sky, the space, smell the earth, you know, the, <laughs> the sun, all of that. But then I, I, I came to my uh, desk at uh, my parents' home and it was in the suburb. And then I realized that this is how it is. That is how people live in Australia. Mm. And I think, you know, this is not just only in Australia. Where I studied in, in England, you know, that was also part of it. You go to London, yeah, London is a, you know, super uh, metro city. But at the same time, my friends, 
because we are studying, you know, uh, only five of foreign students and the rest are like 20 of them are like, you know, British. And then when they uh, have the holidays, they, they went back to Zhuzhong, uh, you know, and that is not in London. It was somewhere maybe, you know, in, I don't know, or somewhere. That is not, not too close. And some some of them did drive me to their home. You know, I look at, I, I could see how they live. So that, that is, in a way, again, our modern existence. Uh, like you know, in in, in um, where the when the um, festivities come up, Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving Day, you go back home, and you go back home. It's not New York. It is somewhere maybe you know in in Philadelphia or whatever. Mm. That is how we live. Yeah. And so that suburb, you know, that uh, that acute sense of what suburb represents to me was, I think, very important. That suburban existence can be very lonely. Mm. Uh, or, you know, you, you find yourself trying to know your orientation or find your bearing. And I think that is a way to describe what it felt like to live uh, when you first landed in a place and you wanted to find where you are. Yeah, and I, I think that's with your filmography, I think there is so many beautifully um, posed philosophical questions at the core of each of your films. And I remember first getting introduced to your work through The Goddess of 1967, so I was really pleased to see that included, not just um, as part of this retrospective, but also for the um, Melbourne Women in Film Festival, which is currently happening. And so you'll get two audiences for that. Um, for listeners who would like to um, check out Focus of Clara Law. The, the retrospective is running at Acme until this Sunday um, and it, it is um, really a remarkable season. Um, Clara, thank you so much for your time and I'm very much looking forward to seeing this. Thanks for having me. My it's pleasure. Nice you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Thomas Caldwell and myself Flickford. Just prior I spoke with filmmaker Clara Law about her retrospective which is currently playing at Acme and we'll be um, there until Sunday. We also spoke about Europa Europa Film Festival, which finishes up on, oh, what date is it now, Thomas? I'm glad you've got you on air. <laughs> oh, oh, March the 7th. March 7th, yeah. I had to go to a program myself. <laughs> <laughs> the program is very beautiful. I'm it's just started, so there's at least two weeks and then some yeah. to go. You've got quite a while left. And the other film festivals that I briefly mentioned on air were the Melbourne Women in Film Festival, which is also currently playing. Um, and we also covered some summer picks, uh, which I'm not going to repeat, but look, there's lots of films out. I think it was Megan was the, the takeaway from you, Cerise. Hmm. And Thomas, you said both After Sun and what was the second oh, film? Oh, Skin and Marine yes. gone on Shudder. Yes. Yeah. So well worth checking out both of those films. Um, thank you both for joining me tonight. It's always lovely having you on air. Uh, thank you kindly. <laughs> Fantastic being back on Triple R. I feel like this is my natural home. It really is. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 